In order to become a good lover, you need to become a good person. And in order to become a good person, you need to practice the virtues. Now, this is very unsexy advice, but I think it's realistic. And in the long run, everything which is realistic is sexier than the unrealistic. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 31, The Love Clinic. After Hours with Dr. Jason Lepoyarvi. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've been reading The Four Loves, and now that it's finished, it's time to call in Dr. Love himself, Dr. Jason Lepoyarvi, who also happens to be the originator of the quotation at the start of this episode. Dr. Jason Lepoyarvi is half Canadian and half Finnish. He studied theology and philosophy at the University of Helsinki. His master's thesis focused on the theology of the body and sexuality by Pope St. John Paul II, and was published as the first introduction to the subject in Finnish. His doctoral dissertation was entitled God is Love, but Love is Not God, C.S. Lewis's Theology of Love, and he served as the president of the Oxford University C.S. Lewis Society. He's worked at St. Bennett's Hall, Regent College, and Thornlow University, and he is presently Fellow of Literature at the Davenant Institute teaching courses on Lewis, Tolkien, and everything else you might expect. And he's got a couple of books in the works, which I hope we can get him to talk about towards the end of the episode. But we're going to mostly be talking about the four loves today, as well as love in general, in an episode which I'm calling The Love Clinic. Dr. Jason Lapoyavi, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you, David. A long time no hear or see or speak. Good to be back. <laughs> yes, it has been a while. And how are you? How are Issa and the kids doing? They're doing fine. We're on a spring break. My wife, Isa is at home enjoying a week of solitude and therapeutic silence. And <laughs> I, on the other hand, am with three rascals gallivanting around Ontario, presently visiting my brother and his wife and um, family in Toronto. So we're, we're, doing, we're doing pretty good. Thank you. How about you and your offspring? Alexander is great. He is currently going through sleep training at the moment, which means that he's getting sleep and I'm not, and he's waking up with more energy than he did before. So we're kind of doing this wrong. And we did it around the time that the clocks changed. We really didn't think this one through. But I actually had a similar experience recently. Marie took him to go and visit relatives in Kentucky, which meant that I had the week to myself. I slept in a bed by myself. I wasn't woken up in the middle of the night. It was very weird. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> oh, lovely. I miss those times. Mine are so much older. They're like four and stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, also, uh, happy St. Erho's Day. I actually only found out about this today. Apparently, he's a fictional saint of Finland. Have you heard about this? Well, Finns usually haven't. This is... <laughs> This is something that cropped up in the States, I believe, and mm -hmm. probably Finnish descendants living in Minnesota mm -hmm. came up with this fictional saint, Saint Urho, and wrote an ode to Saint Urho in Finglish, so English <laughs> that is heavily... Uh, heavily finonized, and you can find it online. I don't know what the background is. I, I presume it's just another Finnish excuse for drinking. Yes, what I read about it was that they wanted their version of St. Patrick, and so they put his day on the day before St. Patrick's Day, 
And then they could so know, drinking. party before the Irish. Yeah, yeah basically it's drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been on this show a couple of times now, but in my opinion, these have all been the dress rehearsal for this appearance when we can finally do a proper deep dive into the subject of love. So let's talk drinks. Today I'm drinking a Lincumpinch bourbon. Many thanks to one of my favourite listeners, Bud, for supplying the funds for that purchase, and thanks to my wife for driving back with it from Kentucky. Jason, are you drinking anything? Bud, I'll send you my address later, but today <laughs> I'm drinking a Canuck Pale Ale. It's a new favourite, e easy go-down lager. Sounds very Canadian. Well, we have a Patreon supporter to toast today, so I would like to toast the good health of Matthew Williams. May your life be filled with love and virtue. And in the words of St. Urho's Ode, let's give a cheer in our best way on the 16th of March, St. Urho's Day. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, so hopefully it was clear from my introduction that the subject of love is very near and dear to your heart. But just to drive the point home for people who are new to the podcast, let's say they haven't heard your previous episodes, can you talk a little bit about your study of love, both from a academic and a practical standpoint? Hmm. Well, very, very briefly, I've always been interested in love. I suppose everyone has. When it came time to choose my master's thesis, I chose a, ti a, ti a theme, a title on the list which was Catholic Anthropology, the understanding of the human person of John Paul II, especially his the theology of the body, so sexual love and embodied love. And that just sparked my interest further and fueled the flames. And when it came time to choose my doctoral dissertation, I expanded that from embodied or sexual love to include other forms of love and then incorporated my old old love C.S. Lewis and decided to study him in a more systematic scholarly way on this subject. That led to a, a PhD, a nickname which I've which I embrace tongue in teak, Dr. Love, if students or colleagues call me that. Um, personally I'm a terrible lover. <laughs> I tried to keep my work and life separate. Not really, but it's my my moral alibi for failing in love. If I'm not a bad lover, at least I'm very I'm terribly aware of my shortcomings. So the more wholesome and comprehensive understanding your love is, the more ways you're aware of how you fail in love. And yet I'm not self-flagellating either. I'm not not absolutely out, outrageously terrible. Uh, just ordinarily terrible. And I think we all are like that. We have some strengths and some weaknesses and find loving some people easier than others. <laughs> Lovely. Now I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes to your proposal uh, that you gave to your wife because my 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 wife gets gets all teary whenever she sees it. <laughs> oh, does she really love? Well, I can tell listeners. I mean, my my track record is very good. She said yes, and all you need to do is write up a twelve week lecture course on love, and and then you know lure your 
candidate, your beloved, your into the final class and pop the question there at the at the end of your lecture on love. I promise you, if you do that, starting with writing those lectures, you'll have a 90% chance of victory. <laughs> well, let's push on because I've got a bunch of questions about the four loves. And some of these you do address in your YouTube video series on love. And I can't publicize that enough. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be on the website. They're fantastic. Really, really, really good. Um, and so we're going to cover some of the material that you talk about there, but also some others, some other questions which spring from my own imagination, uh, some of which my co-host and I began discussing in our retrospective episode. But let me begin with this. What do you think Lewis is trying to do in The Four Loves? Is he trying to be systematic? Uh, are the loves he describes, are they exhaustive or just representative? What do you think? Well, huge question. First of all, thank you for plugging in those lectures. And I must say that you have done a great, great uh, favor and contribution to Lewis scholarship with this series of yours. <laughs> and so I recommend all the preceding uh, um, ep episodes. You go through so much material. What is Lewis doing in The Four Loves? I think to answer that, we cannot ignore the fact that it was not a book. And you've spoken about this, that it was mm -hmm. intended as a, ra a series of <clears throat> radio talks. And so however we answer that question, the fact that he intended it for an American audience um, using the medium of the radio uh, is important. And when he was asked to speak on a subject of his own choosing he replied immediately suggesting that he was he had been thinking about this for a long time and only looking for a venue and he says in his response to the representative and mrs caroline rakestraw that he, that yes and and basically I, I i would like to in one form of the other talk about the four loves and then he goes on to list the four loves and says in my mind this seems to bring in all of christian ethics so that's your first key i would say that the emphasis is ethics and less for example theology that explains i think some of the theological peculiarities of this book although it is very informed by by theology so he has ethical concerns i think moral con concerns here uh, e even more so than psychological or theological although the book is interdisciplinary it's hard to say whether it's a philosophical or an ethical or a theological book isn't it mm -hmm. i mean it's all over the place in in a good way <laughs> but so the hiccups involved in the radio production are pretty well known um but the hiccups involved in the production of the book are not very well known. Um, but the letters between him and his editors exist, and we do know that his editors had had some concerns of their own in addition to the American uh, Episcopan, Episcopalian TV Radio Foundation. They had their concerns, but the, the, the Brits had different concerns. And the book is about a third longer than the radio talks. So Lewis included 
subhuman loves. Um, talked about love and co of country and animals, and he introduces this whole need love, gift love, appreciative love distinction. He brings in the nearness by approach versus nearness by um, um, likeness distinction. All of this is new in the book, so he's it's he's really developed his thought in, during the one or two years between the, the radio talks and the books, but. It is not systematic. It's not unsystematic, I would say, um, but it's not systematic. He's taking literary liberties, and some of the liberties that he took, his editors caught on and called him out on, including the fact that he starts with one kind of understanding of eros and towards the end of the book that morphs into a different kind of understanding it becomes almost personified eros becomes a demon um, and also the fact that it's not very clear where what the difference between what he calls loves is as opposed to just mere acquaintances or relationships mm -hmm. what makes one love and the other just a mere acquaintance the difference seems porous so he's taking literary liberties <clears throat> and if you're if you're nit a nitpicker like I am, <laughs> you, you'll, you'll eventually notice some of them. It, so just to recap, I don't think he's been systematic, comprehensive, certainly not. He's trying to hit on some key ethical considerations, especially, um, and secondarily theological considerations that he's worried about, that he wants to counter apologetically. Um, correct some false tracks, false trails, perhaps in 20th century Christian discussion of love. Um, but in the end, um, you know, raises his own problems about the number of love, for example, or the nature of love, which mm. aren't necessarily resolved. The way I've described the book as we've gone through the season and when we've been speaking to our Patreon supporters and I've been kind of showing my hand as to how I, how I think of this book, it's almost like a series of thumbnail sketches. He gives us a number of different frameworks for thinking about love in order for us to have conversations about it. Mm. But that then, that then begs a very important question. Why doesn't Lewis actually define love in The Four Loves? Are the loves... Are the different loves? Are they are they really just the same loves in different contexts? What do you make of that? Well, I think the way you describe four loves, thumbnail sketches to inspire conversation, whether or not that was his motive, that's certainly what's happened. Mm. You know, everybody reads the four loves and comes away with from it. <laughs> enlightened inspired infuriated frustrated yep. perhaps mm -hmm. and and tons of questions so he certainly pulled it off whether it was deliberate or not um in one way what he's doing is that he's he's fighting two battles two opposite battles i think one is that he's trying to defend human love especially human love against some of its detractors whether uh, whether atheistic, cynical detractors or uh, Christian, Calvinist, Lutheran detractors. So he's defending. It's a, it's a robust defense of human love, not just divine love. But he's also, on the other hand, he's fighting a different battle. He's 
trying to uh, warn people against idolizing love as especially treating the feelings of love as divine and above all the romantic or erotic feelings of love which are so powerful and he's so immersed in it in this project that as you say nowhere is love defined which is incredible for a thinker of his caliber and and carefulness, meticulousness. I mean, if Lewis is anything, he's a definer. He's the arch definer, distinguo. He'll attack a problem. The first thing he'll do, as he's been trained, and as perhaps all of us should do, is what do we mean by these words? And so he, do, he does introduce tons of distinctions in the the huge concept of love, but nowhere does he explain what the common denominator between all these forms and types and elements of love is. And there has been different kind of attempts to explain this. There's an American Lewis scholar by the name of Caroline Simon, who in the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis says that possibly Lewis kind of trusted his audience to recognize the rudiments of love, then um, thereby not feeling required to define love. This is, I, I, I don't buy this, I don't buy this explanation myself because. It's, I think it's an excuse, and he never does that elsewhere. Like, you all know what I mean by pain, so I'm not going to define pain in the problem of pain. Mm. No, he doesn't do that. No. He, so there has been attempts to then define love on behalf of him uh, by scholars uh, like Caroline Simon, like Gilbert Maylander, and like myself. Um, different proposals to what could be at the, the core of the, the essence of Lewis's understanding of all loves, regardless of what love it is. It is kind of funny, because one of the lines we've said throughout this season is drawn from the four loves, where Lewis says it's very easy to praise or dispraise, rather than define and describe. And one of the things that he does is he doesn't define love, but he does describe it a lot. And part of me wonders, are we meant to derive a definition from doing this exploration and this description. But I do notice that he does approach something close to a definition of love in the radio talks. This didn't make it into the book. But when he's talking about Storgi, he says that it's the oldest, most spontaneous form in which we go out of ourselves towards others. And that's definitely my co-host Andrew's favorite definition to use for love. Myself, I like Thomas Aquinas's seeking the good of the other as other as opposed to for what we can get out of it. Um, but let's just go with that basic definition, to go out of myself towards another. Now, you and I have spoken both on the episodes and uh, over chat uh, in the past about a definition for love. What do you make of this definition, and what alterations would you make? Well, this comes close to what Gilbert Maylander proposes in his book on the social and ethical thought on of C.S. Lewis which is a classic from the late 70s. And he goes through all of the instances, all of the descriptions in all of what was then published by Lewis 
that approach some kind of definition of love. And he tries to categorize them. He comes up with three main types. One of them is love as self-giving. And this sounds like love as self-giving here. And it happens to be the one he favors of the three that he proposes. Now, what I would probably ask is that if I told you, David, that, David, I go out of myself toward you, how does that make you feel? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what I'm getting <laughs> what I'm getting at is that this isn't very informative. Hmm. It's certainly not very sexy. <laughs> uh, you mentioned sexy, quoting someone earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not very helpful, I think, because it's so vague, uh, and and it commands, it compels follow up questions. What do you mean? What do you mean? Go out? How are you throwing up? What are you doing? Breathing <laughs> on me? Um, so I myself, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with this. And so whatever our love, a definition of love is, uh, when we unpack it, it should unpack, you know, have the word love, and then you unpack it and give the definition. It should illuminate uh, more than obfuscate. And the one that um, I've proposed is a bit more complicated than that, but I've tried to capture the the three, what Lewis calls the three elements of love, need love, gift love, and appreciative love, which he says are present in all four types of love, what he calls the four loves. And so there's a clue right there that these four types of love all share these three elements of love. So the essence of love must somehow have to do with these three elements, because these three elements are present in all the types of love, whether there's four or six or ten or twelve. Because obviously, there are more than four. There's more more than four kinds of human relationships that can be called love. And Lewis just chooses four for pedagogical reasons, I think. And so what I what I propose is that Lewis's if there is a definition of love in Lewis's corpus and thinking, it's that love is the appreciative and the responsive commitment to the beloved's flourishing. The appreciative and the responsive commitment to the beloved's flourishing, regardless of who or what that beloved is. Self, a human, God, whatnot. And here you got the love of appreciation. Love says it's good that you exist. You've got um, gift love. Love says that I promise to commit to your well-being and promote it to the best as I can. And so the the commitment to the other's flourishing. And then also love says that I welcome your love in return. I don't remain closed from you. I don't demand your love and make my love conditional, but I do hope for it. And I'm open. I'm happily vulnerable to and for your love. Um, Vulnerable. You may hurt me because of this openness, this reciprocity. And so that means if that... When you translate, I love you, and unpack it, I would say, David, I appreciatively and responsively 
promise to commit to your flourishing insofar as I can. Hmm. And I think, I think that says more than David, I will go out of myself to word you. Mm-hmm. But that's just a proposal. But it does provide more of a skeleton for an explanation as to what it means to go out of yourself. Because if you are appreciating me, if you are open to receiving, if you are committing to my flourishing, well, now I understand what it means for you to go out of yourself. Because it means that you are seeking my good, not your own. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you could say, you know, somebody who um, perhaps our friend Andrew uh, thinks this, that, okay, if, that if you were to ask Lewis or whoever, what do you mean by going out of yourself towards other? And you start unpacking it, you would actually approach the kind of slightly more informative definition that I've prescribed. Um, and so that's absolutely true. And I think with defining anything, it's a balancing act. I mean, it cannot, it's, it, you cannot go on defining forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you need to define enough to capture the basic rudiments of the love for the definition to be helpful. And so, and I use the analogy that, you know, you can, you can lose a bar of soap by two ways, by squeezing it too hard or by have a limp hand and you'll drop it as well. And the same with defining anything. It's really, there are justified reasons for expanding your understand your definition of a concept and contracting it. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, I have a question about charity, but I'm actually going to put a pin in that just for a little, little bit longer. Let's, let's talk about the natural loves. Because as we've read the four loves, we've suggested at various points that Lewis's perspective is very much influenced by his gender. He was a guy. His occupation, he was a teacher at Oxford and Cambridge. His era, it was in, published this in 1960, the state of his life. You know, he spent most of his life single and then was recently married. And, you know, the various life events. At the time he was writing this, joy was dying. So how much of what he says do you think is universal and how much do you think is specific to him? Because a lot of people criticize the friendship chapter saying that, this sounds like mostly male friendship, and one of your videos goes into this in, in more detail. But generally, and in that particular case, what, what do you make of what Lewis says? How much of it is universal? How much of it is colored by his gender, occupation, era, state in life? That's very good. I mean, that's a good question, David. And that, the observation that Lewis is, what Lewis says is, is influenced by his stature, his position in life, his education, his country, his language. All that is absolutely true, but it's also kind of superfluous. Um, you know, he, I mean, he wrote, he gave his examples from, he gave academic examples instead of bowling examples, because he knew the university better, better than he knew or understood the bowling ball. <laughs> um so obviously it would be colored by by him his personality his experiences etc but sometimes when we say this that it's it's influenced the assumption there is precisely what you pointed out earlier that it's influenced to the ex- extent that he is present occasionally presenting something peculiar and individual as universal 
and 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 as a generalization and that's when your so-called influence colors what you say and and write in the wrong way and i think many people do believe believe that i uh, myself i'm not so convinced so i'm not persuaded by the fact that he was married recently or that he he lost his wife i i don't I, I don't find elements or arguments that are novel here that aren't cannot be dated or, or traced back to pre-joy era, for example, not even in Eros. But I may be wrong. I'm open to being corrected, but I myself am not persuaded. I think it's a romantic idea that it may have happened, and it's what the movie Shadowlands, for example, portrays that did happen. I think it's clear that Lewis was happier, but I don't uh, happier in marriage and after marriage but it's not clear for me that the book would have been drastically different had it been written in 1950 for example this uh, jo uh love in all its forms ha was some a lewis's obsession all his life since his boyhood since his letters to arthur he's been thinking about the difference between eros and friendship and and so on it's it is the the the, the key motif in all of his writings as for friendship you know that is i think mo most of the many not most most of the misunderstandings the most persistent uh, misunderstandings about C.S. Lewis on love, originate in this chapter, starting from the idea or proposal that Lewis didn't believe in friendship between the sexes, for example. People just aren't when reading the text carefully the, if they say that. They're not reading the text carefully. It, it is a celebration of friendship between women and men. Lewis goes as far as to say that this friendship even enhances eros, and he, in the the, the radio talks, he's very open. He says, like, I myself prefer this change, in this historical change, much more now that we work together side by side in universities and so on. Uh, we Real genuine friendships can then arise, and they're common. Um, but Lewis goes on a very long rant against the uneducated wife of a friend who out of envy or whatnot kind of shipwrecks and sabotages male friendships. Uh, and that may be personal, just like he exercises a demon and surprised by joy when he goes on a, on a long spell talking about his early childhood and upbringing um, and his awful experiences at the hand of the sadistical uh, prin principle. But... So some this is probably some quite personal, and then but I think what happens is that kind of this Mars our reading of that chapter. He come he sounds like he's sexist, but he's not. He's trying to defend love, um, friendship. But on love. that point, it does feel like he needed an editor. It's like okay. Jack, this is a great point, but we need it to be about a third of the length. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. people and are going to be looking. They try. Mm -hmm. They tried. Um, his editors, Milton Waldman and um, Mister Collings, did send him a long list of things. And some of his, some of the thing, the changes, he was happy to 
work on and others he just shrug off and said tut, tut, um, you're wrong but yeah he, he did need an editor a more strong-headed editor and they, his editors were actually writing to each other behind Lewis's back we have their letters and they're mm. concerned for Lewis they're concerned for Lewis here and they end up saying all sorts of unflattering things that you don't want your editor to say <laughs> certainly not as a blurb, they wouldn't work as a blurb on the back cover. But friendship, I heard, I hear it so often that this friendship is a friendship that women, or men more than women, recognize and embrace. Again, I'm, I'm not fully convinced. It's my mother's favorite chapter out of all four. Um, I would propose, well, the most common objection here is that it's Lewis's suppose when Lewis presents friendship as uninquisitive, mm-hmm. not interested in the other person's, the beloved, the friend's personal affairs, that is a real turnoff for women, especially in an era where self-disclosure is the hallmark of friendship. Now, mm-hmm. my proposal is, and I've spoken of, of this in that in a, in an lecture online as well. My proposal is that. Lewis's personal peculiarity, which is not universal, is his privacy, is his sense of privacy here. But that privacy is not essential to Lewis's friendship. The core of Lewis's friendship is the shared joint passions. Now, if a man or a woman recognizes shared joint passions as an element of friendship, but is turned off by the supposed uninquisitiveness, that's perfectly fine. Um, I think that Lewis's understanding of friendship per se hasn't been damaged at all. Lewis himself preferred a certain kind of friendship more than other friendships. However, one of the joint interests or passions that we share, right, David, is the everyday context of each other's lives. Mm-hmm. So we can, if we want to, if that's what we're interested in as friends, talk about Alexander, talk about my wife, Isa, and your wife, um, and talk about my children as the, the primary interest in our life at this moment. And that is the glue then that draws us together, among other things like C.S. Lewis, perhaps. So that's probably what I'd say. And I, I'd also kind of say... I, very provocatively suggest, and I'll, I'll close with this, suggest that Lewis's understanding of friendship is very inclusive, surprisingly inclusive, because when he says friendship doesn't care about your past history or your your class or your income of your profession or your family or so on, what he means by it is that you don't have to be a certain kind of person to become my friend. Mm. As long as we share, we ask the same questions in life. And that is very anti-racist. That is very that is very egalitarian. It looks beyond gender. It's the opposite of an atomized understanding of fr- a friendship. And at the end of this sort of friendship, Lewis says, the friend will know his or her friend better than anyone else. So in the end, as a bonus of this, of not be not erecting these artificial p- 
barriers through prejudice, preventing friendship from uh, forming, you, the bonus, the, the dividend this pays is that you actually end up knowing about also the personal affairs of your friend better than anyone else. So I'm being slightly provocative deliberately just to introduce a different voice in the conversation. And this is why I've set you out this season. I think Lewis needed a better editor because I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. The sting would have been taken out of that tale if you said, this is just not what the friendship, this is not what the love is about. It, it, it's, it's off at the sides. It's not the primary focus. And as you say, it's much more inclusive. And particularly given that Lewis was very familiar with the classics, when you look at Greek and Roman authors writing about friendship, they demand parity on all of these sorts of issues, your social standing, your wealth, mm -hmm. your ability, your power. And he's saying that friendship actually doesn't require any of that. It's superfluous. It's about the shared interest. This is radical. Yeah. Innovation. And connected to that, I interviewed uh, a patristic scholar uh, about his book, Friendship and the Fathers. And we were, we were talking about this, uh, this a little bit. And I think this, this, this definitely plays into the other issue that people have with the friendship chapter, that this self-disclosure can also be something around which a friendship can be built. When I've asked women and really pressed them on, on what they don't like about this, they will say that I don't necessarily have to have a shared interest, but if we've bonded over something, if, we've, if we have revealed ourselves to each other, it's, it's that shared life around which our friendship is built. And I think that that almost that happens automatically when the two people share a faith, because it means that they are members of the same body, that they are uh, walking towards the same goal, even if it's say that they don't have an interest in stamp collecting or, or some kind of hobby that that is simply enough to build a, a, a friendship around because it's going to involve uh, closeness and self-disclosure. That's very good. Absolutely. It's not like stamp collecting, you know. Mm. It's, it's bigger than stamp collecting, which is one of the things that Lewis mentions in The Four Loves that has the power to bring people together. Well, if that has the power to bring people together, surely a faith does as well. So perhaps these people are kind of taking for granted all of all of these commonalities that are preconditions for their friendship and their relationship to uh, form and, and develop. Well, at the end, another way to look at it is that it's a, it's a question of it's semantics. Lewis means some one thing by friendship. Now, if we mean something else by friendship, then there's kind of no point in arguing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what you mean by friendship, I recognize, I sometimes value, but that's not what I mean by friendship. I mean mm -hmm. something different by friendship. And Lewis might respond, aha, okay, well, in my books, that's more like agape, or that's more like storge, or, but I see what you mean, and I think it's a genuine justified love and you know good for you and this is why i don't object to the fact that lewis isn't particularly strict with his greek definitions of the different kinds of love they, they don't map particularly well to the the biblical usage of the greek but for me that's irrelevant he is he is choosing some tokens some labels of some things certain kinds of love he's going to talk about it and he defines it at least within those loves themselves he defines them himself what he calls friendship um, Cicero wouldn't have called friendship. And 
in the same way that we use the word love in English for far too many things. I love hot dogs. I love my wife. I love my son. All very different loves. Likewise, we do the same with friend. We have Facebook friends. We have friends at work. We have yeah. friends at church. These are all very different kinds of friendships. And so perhaps we need Greek, diff Greek words for each of those as well. Well, we, we could. I think we we could and if you press lewis on it lewis might come up with these words and say that absolutely you know there are as many quote unquote loves in greek or whatever language as we can think of human relationships and i was just talking about four co very common or three very common mm -hmm. relationships here you have a very good point about words about the danger of reading into literature our understanding of words um and the misunderstanding that that can cause and so if we come to the four loves with a precondition of what agape meant that we learned from sunday school or last sunday's sermon um you know it will distort our reading our understanding of the book quite considerably for example and that's a perfect transition because the word agape or Agape, however you want to pronounce it, it has certainly shifted over time. And I want to talk about his charity chapter because it's the one that I have reread the most and I'm still not entirely sure what he's referring to. I have my suspicions, I have my theories, but let me ask you, what is charity? Well, I'm not sure how much I can help you there, David, because <laughs> I'm not entirely sure either, but I can share my not so sure thoughts and suspicions with you and we can compare notes so to speak what we do know from his letters is that one of the greatest motivators for him to write this book is his reaction against probably the most influential theology of love in the 20th century in christian circles popularized by Anders Nugren and his book Eros and Agape, by which he means human love and divine love, where divine love or agape is everything good and Eros or human love is everything bad. <laughs> now we do know that four loves, and he doesn't mean he doesn't mean romantic love, he just means human love in all its forms, including romantic love. We do know from his letters that Lewis reacted against this he would obviously because this is a very this is a very calvinistic old school lutheran understanding of the relationship between the created and of create creation and the creator sounds almost gnostic well yes you could say well it's, it certainly has a very weak doctrine of creation where mm. where creation isn't robust enough to withstand the fall um, a total depravity being one of its consequences. I personally think that I'm convinced that one, one of the main motives Lewis had here was to, to provide a very different, an antidote, a vaccination against antibodies against this virus. He thought <laughs> that was, was ruining Christians' lives and their relationships because it was erecting a false ideal of agape and also unnecessarily demonizing and tarnishing human loves to their core. And so when in the four loves, Lewis does not talk about charity, he uses agape. But agape is just traditionally the, 
the, the Greek equivalent to caritas in Latin. And, we, and from caritas, we get charity in English, which you, everybody who's read The Four Loves knows Lewis means by charity something, something beyond almsgiving. But when he writes the book, he, instead of the radio talk, he suddenly decides, I'm not going with agape. I'm going to talk about charity instead. And I think one of the reasons he does, or the main reason perhaps, is that agape already then and today has a certain, this is where the words come in, David, that you mentioned, mm. has a certain understanding in the popular imagination of the, the average Christian reader that Lewis is addressing in this book. And so by adopting a different word, he kind of minimizes the risk of the reader reading into it. And yet we do anyway. I read the four loves <laughs> like four times, four times before I before I kind of realized that I'm I'm reading in my into this last chapter, especially my own my own upbringing. I'm I'm looking at it through a certain kind of lens, and I need to take my glasses off and look at it afresh. My proposal is that this is not the essence of love. So I already told you what I think is the essence of love. It's not the fourth love. The fourth love is something different, this charity love. And I don't think it is, although towards the end of the book, it becomes quite mystical as he, mm. when he ta talks. It, it becomes very mystical to, to the point where he says, I must stop here and where a better book would begin, mine must end. But it, it, charity is whatever the three natural loves are missing, what they need not to go corrupt. And we, if we're Christians, we immediately think they need God. They need grace. So charity must be grace. But reread the four loves from the beginning to the end, paying attention, careful attention to every time Lewis says that the natural loves fail and what is needed. What is needed is something more, much, much more practical, virtue, character, which comprises all of our virtue. And this is a completely different vision or reading of the four loves. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the majority of us have been reading it wrong for the, for myself included, for decades. It is much more practical. Lewis is saying love is not enough. What love needs is of all of the other virtues to sustain it, to give it life, to protect it. You need wisdom to know when to love and how to love. You need courage to love in adversary. You need patience for the same reason and, and so on. And you need, you need justice so that your your hierarchy of your loves and your loyalties is not over, all over the place and you don't end up sacrificing lower values or higher values at the expense of lowers and so lower values and so on so that's what i think charity is replace charity with character the word character or virtue and that's what lewis says in his essay we have no right to happiness as well the good lover what does the good lover the happy lover, what do they need? Loyalty, self-control. He lists just a string of virtues. <laughs> so that will, I think, solve 90% of the confusion of the last chapter if you do that. But I don't think it's a, a perfect solution, um, either because either the solution itself is not perfect or Lewis 
or the material there do not accommodate any perfect solution because it's it would require an editor, perhaps, like <laughs> you said. Well, I'm really pleased with your answer because this is why I chose the quotation at the beginning of the episode that I did. And you and I are tracking very closely on this. So this is what I think. I think in the natural loves, it is love that is operating in all of them. Whichever of the definitions we really want to use, but it's ultimately about seeking the good of the other and all of that good gift love, need love, and appreciative love. Uh, but in the natural loves, we're helped by something very biological, uh, our impulses, and that is very much what drives the loving. The way that I love my mother, my immediate family, my roommates, this is what drives the way that I love, and Lewis just happens to call that Storgi. In friendship, the thing that drives the love is almost more intellectual. Lewis himself says it's the least spiritual of the loves, but it's that shared common interest. That is the, the fuel, so to speak, that drives my loving of my friend. And in Eros, we all know what drives that. <laughs> now, that one has a very strong biological impulse. And so the way that I view his chapter on charity is we are taking that to its to its completion. As you say, it's it's the what is ever whatever is missing in those other loves. And I do think it's virtue, and you're absolutely spot on, yes. Throughout, he keeps coming back to what is needed is virtue. But in that charity chapter, he talks about um the whole of the Christian life in one particular relation. When we spoke about it, it's it's our relationship to God. And I think this is where we can bridge what I think he's actually saying with the common misconception of what he's saying. If I'm orienting my life if I'm orienting my loves, ordering my loves according to my relationship with God, not only will they be correctly ordered, but if you're a Christian, you believe that God gives you help. He gives you grace. Paul says in Romans that the, you know, the Spirit has been poured into our hearts, that this is the thing that strengthens us and therefore, therefore strengthens our virtues. And we say charity is one of the theological virtues, just like, you know, it's it's in a separate category, but not that dissimilar from, say, the, the cardinal virtues. So I think viewed that way, I think we can reconcile all of this together. I think, yes, it's primarily about the virtues, about see, and it's pure in the sense that it isn't requiring um, either the stimulation of biology or mind or anything else. It is now about our orientation to God that is driving, empowering, and uh, our love and ordering them all. I like that. This reminds me of the abolition of man, which is a, perhaps a surprising link. But what you said about the natural loves being biological and organic and instinctive. In the abolition of man, the metaphorical conception of the human person is head, chest, and belly. The head rules the belly, so appetite, sex, so on, through the chest. The chest being the seat of magnanimity. Or the or character, the virtues, and so if Storge and Eros are very belly-like, and friendship <laughs> is very head-like, like you said, intellectual, um, you need the chest, what makes a human person a human person, in order to organize both the head and the uh, the, the belly, and that that's character, that's virtue, and it's ordered by the Tao which points upwards and outwards. It's ordered by the, the natural law. Mm -hmm. it, by, yeah, well, well, that's kind of, that's, that's a really good 
bridge to the idea of Christian love. So the natural law is not Christian. So the natural law is natural. It's universal. When we ask whether there is a distinct Christian love, what we're really asking is, is there natural law or is there not natural law? Because if there is natural law, if the, the requirements of the good is, are universal and universally recognizable, then what fulfills the good, the requirements, which is love, must also be universal and universally recognizable. And so it cannot be a distinct, separate Christian love that non-Christians do not share. Otherwise, we will have reinvented a new ethical paradigm, a new set of rules, which Lewis outright rejects. Jesus didn't come up with a new set of rules. So whatever Lewis means, and he goes, is very, and this is the 10% that I don't get, and which I think you're on to here. The 10% that I don't get in the charity chapter is when it becomes explicitly theological, religious, spiritual, Christian in, in its expression and its vocabulary. It almost sounds like his, his nemesis Anders Nugren, whom we know Lewis disagreed with to the core. It almost sounds like him when Lewis sounds like there is a, when he seems to be saying that there is a special kind of quote-unquote Christian love that is able to love the lepers and the morons and the stupid, this list that he gives in in in, in charity, and in the chapter on charity, and he kind of kind of suggests that you need charity in to in order to love these things, and this charity is somehow religious. I don't think it is. I don't think it is religious, uh, and I think even the the Bible by speaking of the Good Samaritan, for example, is very instructively reminding us of the fact that the highest, the best kind of love is not a Christian monopoly. It is recognizable and to a very large extent attainable by the non-believers. And yet, as a Christian, I would say, yes, God helps. There is grace. Mm -hmm. We have the sacraments. We have an exemplar of love. Uh, we, we, we look at love himself as a daily reminder of how to love. And so we have these advantages. But these advantage that also means that we are judged more harshly because we know more. And again, <laughs> a biblical principle there. But these advantages do not point us to a in innovation in love, a new love that nobody knew before Christ. Um, rather, they kind of, in their own ways, help us to love in the way that everyone would recognize is is love. So that's where it, it is very theological, that very last chapter, it becomes very theological, but I have my qualms with it, <laughs> as, as do you. Well, I'm on board with everything that you said there. I, I I agree. It's something that's independent of Christianity, uh, just in the same way that when Neville Lewis is writing about Christianity, he said this is about reality. So to to love another as yourself in a way that where you are unpowered by all of the natural or or or, or mental instincts that would help you love somebody 
in the Good Samaritan, he he doesn't gain anything from this. Uh, and I would say that is that when you're loving someone like that, that is charity. You're loving someone with when you don't feel like it and you don't get anything out of it. I think the Christian point of view is that um, Jesus gives us this mandatum. You know, I give you a new commandment: love one another as I have loved you. And so it's now a command to love that way and the help to love that way by being drawn into the body of Christ, being filled with the spirit. And, and, and this, this is how Christians, this, this way of loving should characterize Christians. And it then neatly tucks in with the way Lewis regards the natural loves because it comes in and supports those when those loves would go awry. Uh, you, you, you love your wife badly when you're not feeling butterflies in your tummy when when the eros is starting to to wane or or mm. shift charity then comes in you love them because that is the right thing to do and we would then say as christians and it's it's god who helps us and when we see charity happening outside of the christian fold i think we can still say that this is still a kind of love that is naturally expressing the love that god is and therefore almost has to be supported by him. Well, in his private letters, he does say that, and he's talking about Anders Nugren here to his letter correspondents in America who've just read his book by Eros and Agape and are confused by it, and Lewis is offering help. And he says that the natural loves have an opening for Agape or Almost agape is already present there in the love of the mother, for example. And I'd go as, you know, that's just the most obvious example. When we, like sometimes as Christians we do, well, when we say, okay, well, if you're not a Christian and you end up succeeding in love, it was love, God that loved, you know, not you. I can't really enter this debate. I think it, it becomes kind of meaning meaningless the motive is to protect God's sovereignty and um, and not to you know give any agency to humans, and that's motivated by a certain kind of theology that I don't share. Uh, I have no problem in in giving humans agency mm-hmm. in love and and when the the love that Christ commands, I think one way to think of the innovation there is that not the actual love itself, but the proposal that this is actually how I love you, how God says to us, how mm-hmm. he loves us. So you all know that love is this, but let me tell you something. I, God, your creator, also love you with this love. And that's kind of radic- radical. That's not radically new as well. Another very common understanding or uh, proposal is that what Christianity brought was an expansion of the recipients, mm-hmm. the spectrum my neighbor? of loves. Who is my neighbor? Okay, that's new. The love is the same, but what's new is that you need to be less discriminating in demonstrating that love, and yet including loving your enemies, and and yet. Lewis says in Reflections in the Psalms that he was shocked when he first realized that when Paul, for example, is talking about loving your enemies, Paul is quoting the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And so even that aspect is not a Christian, uh, distinctively Christian, although Christianity gives it a new emphasis, uh, a new impetus. 
Love of Enemy. Well, that's actually another nice transition. Let, let's let's talk about enemy love because uh, we're running a little low on time. But I want to give people a, a little bit of a little bit of a flavour of the things that you have been thinking about, writing about, talking about, and arguing about with me in Facebook chat. <laughs> and we're living, we're recording at a time when there's a, a war going on in Europe. So, mm. what is your current thinking on enemy love? Oh my goodness. It's uh, it's preoccupied my thinking and my writing lately quite a lot, even before the war in Ukraine, even before Russia's invasion. And I've spoken about it in a number of lectures and guest lectures recently. Lewis has a lot to say about the enemy love. I'll try to be brief, David. I think his best thoughts... His most interesting proposals are during the Second World War in letters, first of all in personal letters, and in essays, and finally in books like Mere Christianity. But if I was a Louisian and I'd, def I'd ask any question about enemy love, I would first begin by defining key words. <laughs> so what is enemy love? Otherwise, we don't know what we're talking about. And so, again, I have a proposal. And the proposal builds on my earlier proposal of love being the appreciative and responsive commitment to the beloved's flourishing, where the beloved is one's enemy. And so loving this enemy is like loving everyone else. But who is an enemy? Uh, who is an enemy? And I think your enemy is a neighbor you're commanded to love, but is one of the more difficult neighbors to love. They're difficult to love not because they're dumb or idiots, or, but they're difficult to love for specifically enemy-relative rela reasons, which are, and I propose there are two, which are you feel resentment toward them because of something they have done or said, and or they seek to injure you physically. And so the latter would be, you know, a rapist, a soldier, and that's an enemy. The former would be, could be your parent, your child, your lover, your, it could be anyone, somebody who has caused you to feel resentment, which is inimical to loving that person. So when there's threat of violence or war, when there is festering resentment these are the two specific enemy related obstacles to loving an enemy and so an enemy love is the appreciative and responsive commitment to the well-being of that person you feel resentment towards or seek to injure you and where do you go from there then and how do you love that person very shortly, I would say you'd love that person like anyone else through this character, through the, your virtues. You seek for opportunities to the extent circumstances allow and to the extent is in your power and permissible to commit to their well-being, be it material or biological or spiritual or whatnot, proximate or remote. And you demonstrate this commitment to their well-being. And... In Lewis was struggling with 
simply praying for dictators of the Second World War. He was he tried every day to pray them, and he was asking advice from his friends of how how to make his prayers real for Stalin and Mussolini. He asks Dom Bede Griffiths, like, when you pray for Stalin or Hitler, how do you make your prayers real? And it's kind of like, not if you pray for Stalin or Hitler, <laughs> but you're a Christian, so obviously you're praying for, for Putin and, and so on. And so how do you make your prayers real? So that's one thing. When he thinks of enemy love, he thinks of prayer above all and, and forgiveness. So that's what that's what I that's basically a, a thumbnail sketch of where what I think of enemy love and how I would begin to love people that I consider to be my enemies. Hmm. And it's context dependent. Examples are are innumerable. It would be tedious to go through practical examples because there are just so many. Um, but there are th- certain ways to make it make it easier, no matter what course of action you decide is in your power. And Lewis believes that, that prayer is one of these methods by which you can smoothen it, make it easier. When you and I have spoken about it, I've gone away and thought about it afterwards. And for me, I think the, the key thing that's required is for us to tweak our definition of love just a little bit, to seek the good of the other, in as far as is possible. Because Lewis actually uses that phrase in mere Christianity when he's talking about love. And he's talking about capital punishment and he's talking about combatants. And he expresses the attitude that we should have, the wishing that it wasn't this way. Um, mm. And and, and not, not relishing in that, that you wish the other person would be cured, he calls it that, so that this other person would stop attacking you. And I, I think that your point about forgiveness is very important. And it actually puts me in mind of where Screwtape speaks about how pathetic the English are. He says that they, they talk all this stuff about the enemy, but the first downed German fighter pilot, they start giving them tea and cigarettes. And I think that is how we love our enemy. We, we might try and shoot him out of the sky, but if he's safely on the ground and can do us no more harm, then we give him tea and cigarettes. That's perfect. Yeah. Suddenly, when they're not pointing their Messerschmitt at you or your house, your the possibilities of committing to their flourishing are expanded. And mm. previously, tea wasn't on the table. Now it quite <laughs> literally is on the table. Mm-hmm. I use that qualification insofar as possible in, in some of my publications. And I add to it insofar as possible and permissible. Hmm. Sometimes something isn't possible because it 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 is it is commanded against. The obvious example being that not everything is fair in love and war. Hmm. Um, you know, I cannot. There are certain ways I love my wife in that I do not li- love other women in. It's not permissible. Uh, so absolutely, it has this qualification. It's a very important qualification for ethically, but also psychologically and humanely because you you. You spend yourself, you make yourself an absolutely useless lover without limits. You are no good to anyone if you do not acknowledge and recognize and honor your humane limitations uh, and your finitude in terms of energy and time and resources and so on. The we wish we wish we could love you differently. Um, 
you know, you're pointing your gun at me now, so I can't love you in this way. I would love to love you in this way, but now you're not pointing your gun at me anymore. Now I can offer you tea. Mm-hmm. So this this double will, Lewis in a letter calls it the difference between God's absolute will and his relative will. Mm-hmm. God absolutely wills the fullest best and good for us because of circumstances sometimes the best possible good for us becomes relative you know he cannot love absolutely he can still love perfectly but it's not the way he would love if he had his choice and this also explains why lewis thinks that you can go as far as to participate in lethal warfare in love that it doesn't mean you do not love your enemy at all even if you are trying to stop him or or harm him but circumstances prevent you from loving him to the extent that you can and and other obligations prevent you to from loving him to the extent you can because you also love your family and your child and your country and goodness and justice and this person is jeopardizing all that hmm. and so inaction is not option is not an option <laughs> you uh, you can sin by omission uh, in addition to sinning by commission hmm. now i was going to ask you about lewis's love blind spot but we're a little <laughs> on time and we have actually mentioned it over the course of this season. So there will be a link in the show notes. Please check it out. I, I really enjoyed this video. <laughs> uh, Very but, good. But let's just wrap things up by talking about some of the books that you have in the works. What can you tell us? Well, I'm working on two books at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm almost done with both of them. They're both on C.S. Lewis and Love. The first one is called God is Love, but Love is Not God, which I might truncate into simply Love is Not God, interrogating C.S. Lewis on love or something like that. And the second one is called Erotic Disagreements, C.S. Lewis and Anders Nugren on Love, Lust and Longing. And the first one, most of this is new material, but some of this I covered in my dissertation as well. But the first one looks at very difficult questions like enemy love, like love between the sexes, for example, um, and interrogates, quote-unquote, Lewis on these issues. And I try to signal there that I'm not being uncritical. But Lewis is also interrogating the issues himself. He's not being uncritical, and so we have a lot to learn from him on enemy love, just for example. And the second one is um, more specifically on the discussion on Christian love in the 20th century, largely inspired by Anders Nugren, the Swedish Lutheran theologian that I've mentioned many times. Much of the 20th century theology of a love is a response to him because his book really revolutionized or invigorated discussion on that front, including Lewis. Much of what Lewis wrote today is partially motivated by Nugren, negatively Mm. more than positively. But still, Lewis has good things to say 
uh, about him as well. So erotic disagreements, um, C.S. Lewis and Anders Nugren on love, lust, and longing. And I've got pretty wonderful, formidable professors writing prefaces for both of these works. I can't reveal them yet, but um, we we will see. Hopefully, I I finish them by the end of the summer. Wonderful. (laughs) If you need an alternative title about the interrogating C.S. Lewis, I quite like Lewis in the Dock. Lewis in the Dock. That's very good. It's also a work... It's also it also echoes Lewis's own mm-hmm. God where God Lewis is the, the one being interrogated. He's the one being cross-examined exactly. in the British dock. Which now where British British readers would understand it. Would Americans, when you say someone probably is in the not. dock, w- probably what do they not. think of? San Francisco <laughs> pier, something waiting for ships or something. <laughs> so yeah, that might be a yeah. A, a it's a little bit of an side. impediment. Uh, it, it it always makes me sad when I think a joke is so clever that people won't get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like when you're so sarcastic, people just think you're stupid. Yes, that's a fine line. <laughs> well, Dr. Lepoyavi, thank you for coming on the show. I hear the call for final drinks at Bar Bakari. That's how, is that how you pronounce it? I looked for exciting bars in Helsinki. Bakari. Bakari. Okay. That means back room. Ah, okay. Well, I hear the last call, because apparently they still do that in Helsinki. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you? Well, thank you. I've I've enjoyed this very much. And if uh, anyone is interested, you can go to studycslewis.com for starters, or look me up on any social media. And don't you have a course on Tolkien coming up soon? Oh, I do indeed, and there's still time to enroll. Um, in a few weeks, my course, Discovering J.R. Tolkien, Intellect and Imagination, will begin. It's a 10-week online course at the Davenant Institute. Uh, very, um, very inexpensive, by the way. We will have two world-leading Tolkien scholars as guest lecturers. We will have two Oxford-style tutorials and weekly meetings just wrapped up my course on lewis and it was a blast so you're very welcome to join us well thanks again to jason for coming on the show thanks to all of you for listening for our patreon supporters particularly our top tier supporters amanda emmy thomas deborah anonymous bill and joanna snort bud shane john kevin brian k paul kimberly gillis gary stephen matt kelly chris john james kate peter david and rowdy Please follow us on social media. I think this is a particularly provocative episode about love, so post it crazy there. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>